Well, Tom and I have been married for 35 years as of this past Monday. Are you thinking that was an accomplishment for me? Was that personal applause or was that... <laughs> well, truthfully, we've had our share of fights um, over the years, but that said, 35 years is a long time, and there are a lot of ways in which Tom and I have rubbed off on each other. I have been... Uh, shaped and influenced by Tom over the years um, more than anyone else. I have internalized some of his uh, thinking processes, how he thinks some of the questions, the kinds of questions he is quick to ask in certain situations. Um, there is a real sense where Tom lives inside me, his voice lives in me, his love, his way of being in the world lives in me. And we were talking about this um, the other day, probably in light of our anniversary, and I was describing how I think he really, I said, I, I think you really do live inside me. Um, and he said, oh, well, you live inside me and I hear your voice often, and he gave me a quote in Tom form that I will read to you. He says, there is a fine line in my mind between helpful evaluation and critique. <laughs> Actually not, says Tom, if I'm honest, because I can see all critique, whether of systems or persons, as helpful evaluation especially when one's critique tends to be 100% accurate. <laughs> My wife, however, has always felt differently about this social behavior. She will detect something in my speech that signals to her that I've crossed a line from perceptive and helpful evaluation into self-serving criticalness. When she fails to refrain from pointing this out to me, I have a mixed reaction. 90% of me is mad and defensive, but 10% of me listens. And over time, the 10% has come to have an outsized influence in my self-awareness. I have slowly come to hear myself the way she hears me, to detect the shift into just being critical and to cringe a little bit. I have her in me as I feel myself about to say something, and sometimes it helps me to have empathy and refrain. And the funny thing is, I have much more empathy and compassion for myself in the process. Well, this morning, I want to look at what Jesus said when he meant when he said, I am the bread of life, and why Jesus thinks it would be a good idea for us to eat his body. Now, we understand this symbolically, but still, what does it mean? Why did he say it? Why would it serve us to have Jesus in us? And the scripture I'm looking at this morning comes from John chapter 6. I'm going to summarize the first part, and then we'll look at portions of the latter part, which tends to be a little bit more confusing. 
So the first part, many of us are familiar with um, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is out teaching the people. The day is getting late. And at some point, Jesus says to his disciples, ah, we have more guests than we expected. What are we going to do? We've got to feed these people. Now, my guess is that the disciples are thinking, we didn't tell them to come. Like, they're responsible for themselves. Let them get their own food. And honestly, all things considered, I might be thinking the same thing. One of the disciples kindly explains to Jesus that if we were to purchase food for this entire crowd, it would take at least half of a year's wages. Like, that's a lot of money, Jesus. Another disciple shows Jesus a boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I'm not sure what he's thinking because the scripture doesn't say, is this an act of faith? Like, look, Jesus, we have enough food for a couple families. Like, you can work with this, right? Or is he thinking, we have five loaves and two fish, Jesus. This is crazy. But people estimate that with women and children, there would have been 20,000 people present. Jesus apparently, nonplussed, blesses the bread and fish, the boys' limited resource, and it is multiplied to the extended community. So this is a good trip, trick, and the people are amazed, and they think, wow, this man is a great prophet. And they're so swept up by what this would have looked like. Like, wait, did he just feed 20,000 of us on these five loaves and two fish? And they're so activated that they decide that they will take him by force to make him a king. Well, Jesus isn't thrilled by this idea, so he escapes the crowd to the other side of the lake, and how he got to the other side is another story that we'll save for another time. But we're picking it up now in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you didn't come all this way because you recognized God in the signs that I did, I performed yesterday. You came because I multiplied food and you're hungry. Now, to be clear, I'm not judging these people. They are poor. They're existing in corrupt systems on every side ones that are continually exploiting them, but Jesus is trying to show them something beyond, something in addition to physical food. So verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God has placed God's seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So it seems like the people are trying to figure out what Jesus is saying or what Jesus is offering, and Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
So when belief is used in the Gospels, the word connotes something more like abiding, like abiding in Jesus or Jesus abiding in us. It's inhabiting Jesus. So they asked him, well, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe? What will you do? In other words, we like the sign you did yesterday. Maybe you want to give us that sign again. And they go on. Our ancestors actually ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now the crowd is quoting scripture to Jesus. In other words, maybe you could do the same trick that our ancestors did all those years ago. We want more food. So if we think of Maslow's hierarchy, which is my want, these guys are at level one, right? They just want to be fed, which is understandable. Um, but so they... Uh, Give us food, and Jesus is trying very hard to say, I want to give you a different kind of food, a way of taking the essence of the divine into our being. So it's several rungs up the ladder of consciousness. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is God who gives you the true bread from heaven. So in other words, don't only want the bread, seek after the God who gave it. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We might say it this way, if we're doing a gratitude practice, don't only rejoice in all the things you have, but in the God who gave you them. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. So now it's sort of like the woman at the well, right? Where can I get this living water that doesn't run out? Like, we want this bread, and it's unclear how much anybody understands at this point. Is this water I drink? Is this bread that I eat? What, what exactly is the substance of this? Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Right? I am the manna from heaven. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So there are several I am statements in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I think there's seven altogether. And all of these are ways of fleshing out the question that Moses asked to God a thousand years earlier when he's being sent to the Egyptians and he's saying to God, who should I say sent me? Like, what is your name? Who, who are you? And God answers sufficiently, tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. And for whatever reason, Jesus is using metaphor to flesh out this answer. And this continues for a while with some grumbling, like, what does it mean? Aren't you Joseph's son? And if we skip down to uh, verse 51, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the people began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, this is a provocative and somewhat confusing 
passage. I was in a kid's church in Cambridge, Massachusetts a few years ago visiting a pastor friend, and the teacher was leading a grade school class and talking to these kids about eating Jesus' body, which I thought was a questionable endeavor. And that said, um, she was attempting to explain communion to the little kids, and one of the kids said, wait, isn't that cannibalism? Which seemed like a reasonable response. Here's what we can say. Number one, Jesus cares about our physical nourishment. The whole passage is predicated on Jesus feeding the 5,000. All of the I am statements in John have accompanying physical demonstrations because we cannot separate the physical and the spiritual or the sacred and the secular and we were never intended to. Number two, Jesus uses our limited resources. It is a little boy who gives Jesus his loaves and fish to serve the crowd. Jesus didn't, in this story, conjure something from nothing in the sense that there was already something existing in the community. He used what was there and miraculously multiplied it out to the people. If you see that, uh, the story is literal and he's making a statement about our sharing our limited resource if you see it as metaphor. Number three, Jesus is making a claim that he is the bread of life. He is the manna that our ancestors ate in the desert. One theologian refers to him as the Torah enfleshed, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Number four, there's a story in the Hebrew Bible, hundreds of years earlier of God commanding the prophet Ezekiel to eat the scroll, to eat the Torah scroll. Um, and this again was symbolizing taking the Torah, taking the law, taking God's way of living, of doing life into the prophet's self, representing God from a place of inhabiting God. Number five, Jesus cares about how we live our lives. He wants us to take who he is, how he lives, all he loves into ourselves. I don't know all of what this means metaphysically, but in the very least, he invites us to take him in in the way that Tom and I internalize each other. You guys remember the WWJD bracelets? <laughs> you all wear one. I wasn't a great fan, I have to be honest. But I kind of get it, right? We're trying to think, how would Jesus respond in this moment? Which is not a bad question. Like, I'm in a tricky situation, and I'm thinking, I don't know, what would Jesus do in this moment? But Jesus is taking it a step further and saying, I don't want you to have to think about it. I want you to have internalized my way of being in the world, to know me, to do the hard work of understanding who I am, and being transformed into a person who is compelled by justice, who is moved to action by compassion, someone who returns violence with love, and on and on. And number six, as one of our preachers, Sanctuary's preachers, Chris McMillan, regularly rewind, reminds us 
our faith is embodied. It is human Jesus, embodied Jesus, who contains the divinity of God within him. And it is us who takes Jesus into our human bodies, which is what we rehearse in an act every Sunday when we take communion and will in just a couple minutes. And every time we turn to God and say, come Holy Spirit, fill me, fill me with your life, fill me with your love. Number seven, the crowd grumbles. Is this Joseph's son? Like, how can you be the bread of life? We know your family. Like, we know where you come from. When we read about Peter doing something foolish in the Gospels, we're tended to think, oh, that Peter. But Peter is actually representative of the disciples or representative of the traps that any of us can fall into. And in the same way, when we read the crowd, we aren't intended to read it as, oh, those people 2,000 years ago, hard time recognizing God. We could say that we are those people. We can say that it's hard for any of us to recognize the divine in our midst and that that is a lifetime endeavor for all of us beginning to see God in the world around us. So I have two thoughts to end with, and they're both titled, cons entitled, Consume. Number one is Consume God. So Jesus is saying in every way he can, internalize me, take me into you, take my human person into you. What makes his statement so audacious is not the invitation to eat my body, Oh, if we take that literally, it, it can get a little uh, challenging. Um, it has tripped up a lot of people over centuries, but what makes this statement scandalous is that it's relational, that it's social. People were expecting law. They're expecting doctrine. But this is primarily not an intellectual endeavor. It's not memorizing. It is not theological. It's subjective. It's interactive. The central act of Jesus is calling people to engage with knowing a human being. When I say that Tom is in me, that his voice is in me, that his thinking is in me, it's not because 35 years ago I set out on a plan to memorize him or internalize him. We've just spent enough time together for me to know him, every dinner, every trip, every conversation. We share friends and losses. We share our five kids and their spouses and their four grandchildren, our four grandchildren, and on and on. I know what brings Tom joy. I know what makes him happy. I know he loves his work as a psychiatrist. I know he resents legislation that limits services to the chronically mentally ill. I know he's curious. I know he loves learning and he can't stop. I know beyond knowing that he loves me. I'm using Tom as an example because in part, I have it on my mind since we are celebrating our 35th anniversary, and we decided we were going to celebrate it for the whole year. 
<laughs> um, and, and I'm grateful for that. But I could have easily said that I am internalized any number of you who are part of sanctuary. I've internalized how you worship, how you love, how you work to upend unjust systems, how you care for your families, how seriously you take the command to love your neighbor. I spend time with you and you become part of me, and I'm grateful for that. There are infinite ways for us to connect with God, right? There's models for listening prayer. There are models for praying the Psalms. There's models for contemplative prayer, models for meditative prayer, prayers of lament, prayers like the exam and that ask us where we experience God this day, which is worth any of us. It takes us a couple minutes right before we go to bed. Where did I see God in my day today? And it's worth noting. Brother Lawrence in the 1500s taught us to practice the presence of God, an early mindfulness practice of the presence of God. There are so many ways to eat the scroll. Our longest lasting Bible study is a, a small group called Psalms Group in Sanctuary. The group started as a Bible study uh, before, years before the uh, pandemic, studying the book of Genesis. Is that right? And they have spent years in Psalms, and now I believe they're reading a book together about Jesus. As a group, they are taking God into themselves week after week after week. A friend of mine and myself listen to a Bible podcast every week. I've mentioned it before. It follows the Bible lectionary. There is a Jewish rabbi, which is really fun for me, especially when she has lots of questions about the New Testament, and a Presbyterian pastor, both scholars. They read the passage, and they talk about it. Sometimes they argue about it. My friend and I listen on our own, and then we talk about it and often argue about it and rarely agree but we are internalizing Jesus as we do this. Recently, my friend heard a song about friendship on the radio and got a little bit emotional. And she said, I realize I feel closer to God than I have in so long. And I said, why? And she said, I think part of it is because of our listening and talking together. And of course, we find God everywhere in work, in nature, in friendship, and in justice. Last week, Tom and I were sad about something, and when we get sad, we gripe a lot about what we're upset about, and it seemed like every time we got in the car, we'd start talking about what we were upset about, and it would dominate the car ride, and we promised that we wouldn't do that the next car ride, but then we did the very same thing the next car ride. And then we were going out on a date, and we could both anticipate how bad the date was going to be because we were going to spend the whole time griping about this thing that we were upset about, and one of us had a brilliant idea on the way, and we decided that we were uh, going to... Um, spend our entire um, meal only talking about, our entire date only talking about what we were grateful for. And if one of us kind of slipped back into a, I'm still kind of sad, we were going to gently go back into 
gratitude mode. And so we did that. And it was actually blissful. I don't remember what we ordered to eat that night. I don't remember if the food was good. I remember Tom sitting next to me. I remember our closeness as we took turns celebrating God's goodness to us. And it doesn't mean we still can't be sad or attend to our sadness. It just means we honor the reality that there is more to our stories. And I'll end with this. I've alluded this to already, but broadening the notion of consuming God to consuming the people we see God in, in our lives. One friend said to a friend of hers recently, I don't claim to know what God is like, but you embody all I hope that God is. Consuming the people we want to be more like. In closing, we are invited to be intentional about our own maturing or evolutionary processes. The people we become depends on the scrolls that we eat. So we're just going to literally take 20 or 30 seconds and we're just going to ask, how do I take God, how do I take Jesus into myself? And if you want to think through, are there practices I might want to add? Or, oh boy, I love what I do. This is wonderful. We're just going to take 30 seconds to be alone with our own reflections about what it means to take uh, Jesus, to take essence of God into our bodies. Jesus, make us a people who internalize the goodness, the kindness, the justness, the compassion, the expansiveness, the love of God. As we evolve, as we mature, as we come more and more into ourselves, may we be infused with you. Amen.